Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society. I am Jay Boisseau, the Executive Director and Founder of the Austin Forum, and I'm here today with Byron Reese, an author, a futurist, and many other things, and a past participant in our podcast, a past presenter in our event series. Thanks for joining us again, Byron. Great to have you. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you in particular because of this topic today. So I would schedule you as a regular guest anyway, but today's topic is particularly interesting. And I understand we're going to talk about how a novel way you have of looking at LLMs as the evolution of information organization. Is that right? That is right. And, you know, um, if, if anybody's read any of my stuff, I, I write a lot about history. You know, I think as what... People say, what is a futurist? I think futurists are people who try to figure out why the future happens the way it does. Why did it happen that way and not that way? And and the only real clues you get to that are in the past. And so I really wanted to try to understand this new phenomenon, these LLMs, and like, what are they if, if you try to set them in a larger timeline? Yeah. So I'm happy to tell that story if I may soliloquize, if that's the right word. Well, first, why don't you tell our listeners who maybe haven't listened to our past podcasts or been to the events you were at or haven't read your books, why don't you give our audience a little bit about you and your background and perspectives, and then we'll jump in. Well, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur, and uh, um, and I've started a number of companies, and I think I've had the full range of outcomes. And, uh, but while I was doing that, I had, I had one really good outcome. And when that happened, you start getting a lot of invitations to speak to things. So I started speaking and really good speakers give the same speech over and over again. And it turns out I'm a bad speaker and I never give the same speech twice. So I found myself writing lots of speeches on a lot of different themes and I started seeing that they had common elements. And, uh, so I said, you know, I, I think I want to take the common elements and make books. And so I started writing books. I went to, uh, and so my, my first one was called Infinite Progress. It was a, it was a, a defense of techno-optimism. And then I wrote one called The Fourth Age, which was a philosophy book about artificial intelligence. Although my, my publisher said, never say that. Like philosophy books, yeah, they, they fly off the shelf. <laughs> uh, and then I wrote a book um, about waste, the science of waste. And then I wrote a book about what makes people different than animals? Like, why did we have this outcome? Why do we have cities and, you know, beavers? They have dams, right? Like, great. But have they added, have they gone to cement? Have they added hydroelectric to them or anything? No, they're building the same dam, dam. They've been building all, all the time. So I wrote about that. And then I have a book coming out uh, in, in December coming about how all humans together collectively form a super organism, which I call Agora. It's an actual creature. It's not a metaphor. It's a living animal. And then I'm working on a book, a science book, about uh, ghosts and magic and that kind of stuff, trying to look at that stuff scientifically and see if maybe it, they're phenomenon that we just don't have equipment to measure or something. So I write about things that interest me, and I hope they interest other people. Well, I really love The Fourth Age. Um, I did read a bit of Waste. I don't think I finished Waste. And then I did read... Your last book, the in rocks that think. the poorly named one, as you say, yeah, stories, dice, and rocks that think. That's it. It was yeah. supposed to be intriguing, but you are not the first person to say that the title was not the strong suit of the book. So stories, it's about storytelling, and I love right. that. I always wanted to write that. And dice is about how humans learn to understand probability, mm -hmm. and that that 
probabilistic thinking. It's, it's about the future, it's about the future. And then Rocks That Think was supposed to be a clever reference to computer chips, but it, it turns out it's just a tediously long title that is confusing. <laughs> um, well, good book, interesting title. But let's uh, let's talk about this new thought. You didn't mention it as the subject of one of your books, right. but I it have a feeling be. it's going to be someday, or maybe maybe as an addition to the Fourth Age book. I think I've started that process you and I discussed about the rights to that thing, so it could happen. I, I'm really, and thank you for the setup. So uh, sit back wherever you are and pour yourself a drink and let me tell you helping. a four billion year long story about, I, I, I'm really interested um, to say it's about information is half the equation. I'm really interested in the interactions between information and life. And those two things don't sound like they would have much in common. But let me take you back four billion years to uh, the first life on this planet. Life only formed here one time, or more precisely, it only formed and persisted one time that we know of. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because all life is based on DNA written in the same exact alphabet, four letters long, which we call GTCNA. And because it's all the same exact um, structure, that's why you can take a gene from something and you can make a you can take a glow-in-the-dark mushroom and make a fish glow-in-the-dark because the fish, fish can read that mushroom. It's really fascinating. We all probably know the stat that you share 99% of your DNA with uh, the chimp and more than that, uh, but you share 50% of your DNA with the banana. And uh, and that's because it's a living creature too. And mildew, yeah. you share more than 50% with mildew. Um, and if you think about it, the only way life can propagate is uh, is by storing information. And we only had one information storage, uh, one information storage receptacle, which is called DNA. And DNA is, uh, in humans, it's about 700 meg. And to think of DNA as a data storage device, as a, as a flash drive, isn't a metaphor. It really is data storage. That's all it is. We can even write to DNA. And you can encode it. It's a four-letter alphabet. We use uh, 26 letters for ours. It encodes stuff in four letters. And so it's really fascinating because you and I, Jay, we share we share 99.5% of our DNA. And if if we're only if, if our DNA only holds 700 meg, if you think about that, the amount of encoding that separates you and I is just just a few hundred K. It's really fascinating to think about. So for the longest time, for three and a half billion years, all Earth had were single cell organisms. And it had one place to store information. It stored it in this DNA. And DNA has some advantages. It's highly reliable, um, but not too reliable because we need right. it to be able to, to morph and change. But it's pretty reliable. And so what happens is DNA carries the code on how to make you. And then uh, when you have offspring, that, that data is passed down. And that code is how to make you. So it really is just data that encodes the instructions on how to make you. Great. Okay. So for three and a half billion years, and we aren't sure why, there were only single-celled life on this planet. And that was it. One place to store DNA. Then about 500 million years ago, we evolved brains. Life evolved brains. And you can, and, and the fascinating thing about brains is they became the second place to store information. 
it became a second place in the story. But you kept the DNA, but now you had brains. And you almost think about DNA is like a hard drive and brains are like RAM. That's where you can write stuff real quickly and you can access it real quickly. And um, I would have almost said the DNA is like an optical disc because there you go. Even better, even better. Um, but the brain For our is, listeners, we should maybe explain what an optical disc. No. Okay. We, we don't have to do it, hopefully. <laughs> so uh, a brain was a new place to write information and it could store a lot more and it could write it very quickly. And so with brains, what you saw are things like the Cambrian explosion. All of a sudden you had all this additional information. You had the, the sum total of information was everything stored in your DNA plus what was in your brain. Mm-hmm. And then that was, um, that was huge innovation. And that, because there was more information, life got more complexity. And so then it went along and then we came along and uh, at some point, and then we acquired language. And I wrote a whole book about that with a, an unfortunate title, it turns out. And, um, and what language is, is a data transfer protocol, right? I can, I can put uh, information into you uh, by language. And so what that meant is in the olden days, it, the way you propagated information was by reproduction. And therefore, you could only propagate information once a generation. And so you could only learn in this incredibly slow way. Well, all of a sudden with brains, and with communication, uh, we had a new way to pass around mutations, and we called that learning. And so it may have taken 10,000 years to evolve uh, a tendency to avoid a certain purple berry, but I could just say, hey, Jay, don't eat the purple berries. Uh, they'll make you sick. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that's a, that is a genetic mutation. As much as one of it evolves, having it in your brain is exactly the same thing, but you got it so much quicker. And then you tell people and it can spread like wildfire. It doesn't take once a generation anymore. And so that accounts for this human explosion of progress. It happened about, I think, controversial issue, I think about 30,000 years ago. And so you say, okay, great. And, 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 and when we got language, boom, overnight, we were the preeminent species on this planet. And that's because we had this ability to store more information quickly and to exchange it in this process called learning. And so we could mutate much faster and we could adapt much faster because we had this, we could adapt instantly. So then, then it's really puzzling because uh, 5,000 years ago, a bunch of things happened in, in the world all at once. And it looks like a coincidence. We got the wheel 5,000 years ago. We really got governments 5,000 years ago. We got cities in a big way, 5,000, all of that. But that's also the exact moment we got writing. And see, why, well, why, why is that important? Well, writing is a third place to store information. You can store it in your DNA. You can store it in your brain. But now you could you could write it externally. You could store it externally, non-biologically. And think mm-hmm. of the, what that could do. All of a sudden, that information could travel independently of people. That information can survive past you. Uh, that information can exist in multiple places at once. And so with that innovation, with that new third place to store information, uh, we were able to make this quantum leap and we made nation states, we made law codes and all of that. And and, and that starts to answer this question of why we're different, because you can talk about abilities, opposable thumbs and all of that, and that's all great, but really it boils down to information. We were able to store information and and adapt, mutate, mentally mutate uh, faster than anything else. Now, there was a problem. I'm coming to a pause here. There was a problem with this, though, and that is that writing was still expensive. We know that. Like, few people could do it and all that. 
And so you could only save some things, a very small amount of things. So we still have Plato, right? We still have Plato. But evidently his great aunt Martha had a great cure for lumbago. And nobody wrote that down. And she also had a, a really good tea recipe, according, but we don't know that. So we only saved a few little, little things. And then along came Gutenberg. And then all of a sudden, uh, you could just crank these books out. And you could make all these books and you could propagate this information. Soon we could save much more. So when you say, okay, you look at a one cell creature. Well, guess what? It's still storing all of its information in DNA. And you look at something with a brain, it's still got two things. What do we have? Well, we have our DNA. We still have our brains. And we now have all this external stuff. We collected it in these things called libraries. And we're these immense storehouses of knowledge. And uh, and that empowered, that gave us a scientific revolution. That gave us 1750 and all of that stuff from then. However, and then there's a big problem with libraries, though. And that is that the answer, what you need to know may be in that library. But if you can't find it, might as well. Does, it's as if it doesn't exist. And we always had this problem that you never could find stuff. And we had no solution to that. You know, we made card catalogs an author one, a subject one, and a title one. And and then along came the digital revolution. And we said, you know, what if we used a different alphabet? Instead of 26 letters, let's use two. Let's use zero and one. Let's start storing this stuff digitally. And then uh, we did that. That's like writing. And then let's give that the power of speech. Let's let that communicate together. And let's call that the internet. And we did that. Now, the interesting thing is when we started the internet, even the consumer internet, the way we found information was with directories, not search engines, directories like Yahoo. And in a directory, a website, a book has one entry, just like in a card catalog, it is one entry. And so you could find a website that may have your answer, but it was just a fancy card catalog. So it was better, but it wasn't the answer. And then we're almost to the end. Uh, we came up with search engines where we said, what if you could search every page? What if you could search every page? And then we got search engines. And so then you could type in Google, what's, how do I tell if I have a cold or the flu? And Google brags to you. And they say, you know what? We only took half a second. We found 30 million pages that have your answer. Well, guess what? You don't want 30 million pages that have your answer. You just want an answer. You just want one answer. And so all of our knowledge up until last November was fragmented and spread around and, um, and you had to sort through it to find what you want. And then to be large... fair, they did try to order the answers they gave you. Uh, gra granted, accepting advertisement and promoted answers, they tried to order the answers in likelihood based on your query. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm being a little tongue in cheek. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> it changed the world. It created a, yeah. a, a million uh, new uh, companies and mm -hmm. $45 trillion worth of wealth and it, it brought all of this stuff. Yeah. But, but, all of a sudden, these large language models came out, and they're imperfect, of course. And they're, mm -hmm. uh, well, I think it was you that told me, you know, the ones we use today are the worst ones we'll ever use ever. And, yeah. but what are they? What are they? And so you say, ah, I know what they are. They are our attempt to take all of that distributed knowledge around the world mm -hmm. and consolidate it into one knowledge base, one knowledge base, bring it all together into one knowledge base. And then all of a sudden, you have something new. You can store your, you can store information in your DNA, 700 meg, in your brain. That's measurable, but let's just say some number of um, terabytes. 
And then, uh, and then there's this other thing, this other brain that we store this information in and is unfathomably full of mm-hmm. information. And that is, that is this creature. And so last thing I'll say, and then I, I would love uh, to hear your thoughts on this. The last thing I'll say is there was a man named Leonard Reed who wrote an essay a long time ago called um, I, comma, pencil, the letter I, comma, pencil. It's about a, a pencil. And he points out nobody knows how to make a pencil. There's nobody in the world who knows how to make a pencil. Nobody fells the tree and cuts the tree and makes the, the yellow paint and makes the lead with the clay and nobody can make a pencil. And yet pencils get made. And then in our day and age, we would have said, I smartphone. A smartphone right. has 60 different elements in it. Your body only has 30. A smartphone has 60. And you think about how did all those come together into that phone? You know, you have to start with the cobalt mine you know, in the Congo, and you have to work your way all the way to that phone. And you say nobody could do even a millionth of that. And yet, how does it get done? It's because of that collective knowledge. It's because humanity functions like a single organism now. And that organism knows how to make smartphones. It is It knows how to make smartphones. And that organism is what I call Agora, which can be another conversation. But the big conversation today is that the big news about LLMs is they are an attempt to take a distributed amount of knowledge and consolidate it into a single knowledge base that is queryable. Yeah. And that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And when we had a conversation before this podcast about it, it was completely new way of thinking about LLMs to me. Um, You know, as, as you mentioned, LLMs have their issues. Um, I'd never really thought of it as the aggregation of all information in a, in a structured way, because it's, really just predicting what token comes next based on what it's been trained on, uh, what you prompt it for, and what its probabilistic calculations of all the preceding tokens have led it to make on that next assessment. So when you know how an how an LLM works underneath, it really doesn't seem like magic. It actually is, um, but it's also even, even more amazing in some ways, because once you know how it works, you're kind of amazed it works at well as well as it does. But I, I love your way of thinking about it as this distillation of all of human knowledge, because that's in fact what they tried to do to first order with chat GPT, uh, train it on the, the corpus of everything that was on the internet. I, I think what will be really interesting is when that information is curated and it is based, you know, some information has rules. Here's one of the problems, of course, with LLMs. They, when you ask it to do a math calculation, it's not doing a definitive deterministic calculation. It's been trained on a bunch of other calculations and it's it's trying to get it right based on everything it's ever seen before, as opposed to knowing how to do addition. When you can combine an LLM with a calculational engine, with a knowledge base of proven facts, with a science base with real probabilities assigned to things that we're not yet certain of, but we're accepting for now as the as the standard theory for that area and such, then the hallucinations go down, the uh, utility of it goes up as you have a greater confidence that there's not going to be a hallucination, that it's representing facts as to representing predictions of tokens in a long sequence. And so I realize it's a good facsimile of that now, but until it actually has rules of grammar in it, until it has knowledge bases of facts in it with a non-facts removed, I think it's going to be, it's a real rough approximation. I mean, unlike DNA, the very first information source you mentioned, it was pretty damn good. 
And as you said, highly reliable, almost 100%, not quite. Uh, and that leads to some interesting and sometimes unfortunate things. But um, the degree of accuracy of LLMs is so much less than DNA as a storage mechanism that I, but like you also said, November, we got a long way to go with this. And you and I talked about this before, just five years from now, I think we're going to be astounded by the accuracy of these, not just the utility and the wonder, but we'll, the, the accuracy of them, I think will go up as people learn how to tune out bad data, uh, implement rules in it so that if it tries to do a predictive string that's outside of some known rules or known facts, it corrects itself. Right now we do that with human uh, uh, feedback, reinforcement learning through human feedback. But there will be ways to link this to factual databases. Uh, Stephen Wolfram has a little book about why it would be important to link it with something like Wolfram Alpha. Uh, the coders would, of course, love it to be linked with actual compilers and things like that. So I'd love to see it just linked with the Yeah, let's, let's the talk about uh, Wolfram Alpha. I'm glad you brought that up. So I'm sure most people are sitting, or at least maybe familiar with the name or whatever. But it's Absolutely. interesting what what he, what they did because they tried to solve the same problem this consolidation right. problem but they did it differently mm -hmm. they said you know let's take all these different data sources and let's um let's uh, standardize them mm -hmm. and make them predictable and, and so forth so you can ask wolfram alpha a question you could not ask chat gpd you could say to wolfram alpha uh, what's the number of presidents of the United States born on Fridays times the number of presidents born on in the United States that have sisters? And it would answer that because yeah. all of those are databases that it has ingested and it knows the answers and it can quantify all of that. And that's a kind of that was an approach. Everybody knew the limits of that approach because not everything is co purely computational like that. In town, you know, my good friend Brett Hurt has a company called Data.World, mm -hmm. and they're trying to do the same thing. Uh, with disparate data sets, lots and lots and lots of them to try to normalize them so that you can make queries across them. In the end, our our final thing is is going to be something where you ask your question and it knows where to go for different kinds of answers. But it's always important, I think, to keep in the back of one's head, what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make a knowledge base that is... Um, that is our best, that is our collective knowledge. And then, and then with all the sensors in the world that we're, you know, connected with the internet of things, we're putting all these sensors that are collecting all this data. We eventually start recording everything. Now, love it or hate it, we, that's a different debate, but pretty soon, you know, every word you say, every everywhere you drive, everything you buy, Every cause and effect, eventually, every cause and effect in the universe, in the in the in the planet, will be logged, and then that will be studied. And what will happen then is the life experience of everyone who lived before you will be used to help you make better decisions about your life. And we've never had that. The story of the human race is we learn something and forget it, learn and forget, learn and forget, learn and forget. And for the first time ever, we're going to have a planet-wide memory, a planet-wide memory of all of all the causes and effects. Many people are. Well, we can talk about whether that's good or bad. I can say it will make everybody on the planet wiser than anyone who's ever lived, by definition. Now, whether people follow it, I don't know. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people decide to start smoking every day. Like, whether people decide, right. whether they, they know, knowing the truth, whether they uh, they act on it, there's human, always that. But 
in terms of uh, we've never really ever been in a situation where we could reliably know that the best thing to do. And you'll be able to ask it anything, you know, not just where should I eat tonight? And it's going to know. You think about that. Where should I go out to dinner tonight? I mean, it's going to know every restaurant, every every order that they got in, all the food they have, every one of their menus, whether they have gluten, which ones have these kind of options, how many people are sitting in each one right now, when are you going to get there? Everything, everything, everything will go into that decision. And it's going to say, you should eat here. And, you know, you can say, no, not going to eat there. Like a metal detector. You can buy a metal detector and go to the beach and you're swinging that thing around and it goes, beep, 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 beep. Well, you can dig anywhere on the beach you want. That's your business. I dig where the thing is saying beep, 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 beep. But you can still dig wherever you want. That's your business. But when the thing says you should do this, then um, that will be an amazingly good uh, decision, I think. A lot of people look at that world. I understand that. A lot of people look at that world and they're not excited about it. Uh, they're just, it's, it's so foreign and alien to think that. Well, I think that's one of the reasons ChatGPT captured everybody's attention uh, when we we were having an AI boom before that. People, mm. it was maybe perhaps underappreciated how powerful AI had already become in all of our voice assistants that we, you know, ask our smartphone verbal questions or our or, or Alexa devices or whatnot, ask questions and they answer. Um, we go to Netflix or Amazon, we got good recommendations. We get a call from our credit card company sometimes that you know someone was had hacked our credit card and they detected it through fraud detection techniques that are AI powered. Uh, medical researchers were using AI in image classification to detect the conditions that might lead to tumors. And you know a million examples we could give prior to ChatGPT, prior to November thirtieth, twenty twenty two. But when that came out, it it spoke to people, and no pun intended. Um, it communicated with people in a way that seemed human as opposed to getting a recommendation or getting a notification that this image had something in it or something like that. It seemed human because it was language-based. And you mentioned that in your evolution of intelligence, how important that language step was. I think you said 30,000 years ago, roughly. Is that right? 30,000. And you know that has been this amazingly powerful technology. And I remember you calling it a technology in the fourth age, and I'd never thought about language as a technology before reading that book, but it became an incredibly powerful technology, but it also is so distinctly human, not that other species don't communicate, of course they do, but it is so human for us to have this language in which we can express abstract thoughts and conditionals and all of this. And so when ChatGPT came out, I think it just, it, it wowed everybody because it was the first time something, an AI seemed human as opposed to an AI doing some AI things that humans aren't good at and the human doing things that humans are good at. And so that I, I think has been a boon for um, people appreciating AI, but now we've got to link it to things that ensure correctness, that prevent hallucinations, that uh, uh, ensure it's being trained on good data, corrected against bad data, that when there are rules in a question it's being asked, it knows the rules, not just some patterns of tokens that may or may not follow those rules. But I'm, I, again, I'm just super optimistic for the linkage of LLMs with some of the other technologies we developed. And you just went down an interesting path there with when everything has a sensor and you create this true spatial web. And we had a podcast recently about spatial web. And especially if you leverage this relatively newer AI technique called active inferencing where it's inferencing in real time at all points where there are sensors. 
tying that to something like an LLM, wow, that that is going to seem almost godlike in a way to suddenly have something you can query and it can give answers based on everything that's happened everywhere up to that moment, not just where you are. Everything that has happened everywhere up to that moment percolates throughout that system and into that intelligence. That is going to be amazing and maybe a little scary. I'm not scared, but... <laughs> I agree with all of that. I have to say, though, what you touched on earlier about is how real its voice is. And, and even the fact it uses I, uh, I think, can mislead people. And you, you've mm-hmm. seen these androids that they have that uh, have very plastic, you know, they, they have flesh-like skin and they can talk and they can have inflection. Very soon, a month from now or two months, somebody's going to put chat GPT in one of those and it's going to be the worst day of my life because <laughs> I'm going to, going to start getting calls from people. Everybody's going to freak out because they're going to see this thing that has facial expressions and a smile and it's going to answer your questions and it's going to look really creepily weird and everybody's going to think it's alive. And then everybody's going to call me and say, Oh, it's, it's, that's an AGI. That's a living creature. Isn't. And it's like, no, it's Python code. It's Python code. You could learn to code that, not do it, but you could learn that language in, in a week. And, uh, and, and, you know, infinite amount of compute, it's just Python. It's deterministic and, and all of that. I will say though, I missed this big time. Like I was so wrong and I know why I was wrong. And it's always good to know that. So I used to always hear about these chatbots, and that's what it is, right? It's a chatbot. Mm-hmm. And I would always go ask them, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And never could find one to answer it. And in my book, in one of my books I write, you know, if they can't answer that, how long will it be before they answer this question? Mm-hmm. Dr. Smith is dining at his favorite restaurant when he receives a call. Looking worried, he stands up runs out the door forgetting to pay his check will the restaurant prosecute him how long is it going to take it to be able to say no if if he's a regular there they know him and he's a doctor he just obviously got an emergency call he's going to come by and pay they're not going to call the police like how long is it going to take well i typed that question in chat gpt and it was like oh no no no. if he's a regular they're not gonna they're not gonna prosecute him and i'm like "Uh uh-huh these people have read my book. I, I had this happen where they, they like hard code my stuff into these things. I'm like, okay. And then I'd be like, yeah, but what if he yells? Uh, what if, I said, what if his doctorate is an honorary degree in philosophy from a liberal arts college? What then? And they're like, look, if he's a regular, they know who he is. Uh, they're going to, they know he's going to come back. Don't worry about it. And then I'm like, yeah, but what if when he's walking out the door, he says, so long, suckers. And they're like, and then chat GPT is like, oh, that's completely different. That's completely different. Uh, then they're calling the police because clearly, you know, he's not coming back. And I'm just like, at this point, just yeah, mind blown. And so I was chatting with my friend Pablos and he's like, well, Byron, can tell what happened. This is an exponential curve. And we all talk about them in tech. And you got right here on this exponential curve where it just shot up a whole lot very quickly. And you know about exponential curves and you should have expected that. You should have known that we're there and it's going to shoot up like that very quickly. And, and, you know, it's one of those things you intellectually know, but we don't have exponential curves in like our daily life. You know, you don't wake up with two kids and four, then eight and 16 and 32. Like our, the reality, the reality of the world doesn't behave that way. And so I was taken off guard 
uh, I, I'm, I mean, I was astonished, astonished yeah. by this. I, um, I, I was too. And I do like, just like you, I try to stump it sometimes just to see what its limits are. And I find times where I can stump it and make it give me a, just a terrible answer. Mm -hmm. And I, aha, you're not there yet. But then I'll find other times where I'm trying to stump it and it gets something so complex and elegant. And I'm thinking, what was the data it was trained on that allowed it to predict that set of tokens? Since it's not truly a reasoning engine, it's a, pro to you know, again, predicting the order of tokens based on what you prompted and what it's been trained on. There are times where I'm just, I'm stunned at the answers it gives. They're so good. Yeah. But to your point about curation, I watched this uh, Orson Welles movie, The Lady from Shanghai, and there was a scene at the end. I didn't quite understand the motivation of a character, the, the lawyer in this crime scene. So I asked it. I was like, why did, in Lady from Shanghai, why did the lawyer do this? And it gave me an answer. And I'm like, I don't remember that from the movie. And I kept asking, and it was it was like doubling down on this answer. And then I looked into it, and there are all the draft scripts of Lady from Shanghai all the drafts along the way are on the internet. So it trained on all the draft scripts, oh, not yeah. on the one that they shot. Yeah. And so we got all these drafts. And so I got an answer from 14 drafts ago. And that's your curation point. Like at that point, um, it was wrong, but it was yeah. right. But it was wrong because, but we know, we, we, but, we, but we're, we're, we're in violent where, agreement on this. Yeah, that's an example of where rules come in. If you see a bunch of versions, you have to know the, the final version, not the drafts, is the definitive one. Be trained on that. Don't be trained on the other stuff unless the query is about earlier drafts. The drafts, exactly. Exactly. What a world we live in, Jay. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's so exciting. Like, people worry about the misuse of these tools. And to be clear, you know, there was this letter and we, I know I'm, I'm at time here, but there was this letter that everybody was asked to sign to pause these things. Like, we should pause all language models and, you know, for six months. And if you read it, it says that this technology should not be adopted until we are certain the advantages are going to outweigh the disadvantages. And you think, well, that sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. Other than there's not been a technology in history that could pass that test. Right. The, the printing press couldn't. Could you really have known? The, the, could could Gut, Gutenberg have proven, have proven, that's the thing, it's a standard of proof, have proven that it's going to be better? Could we have proven with the internet we would be better off with it? I'm not even sure today if we are. <laughs> uh, so could we have proven? No. And so yeah. not knowing what's going to happen in the future is is not a reason to be afraid of the future. And every if, if you pause this stuff for six months really what you're pausing is the cure for cancer for six months you're pausing clean energy for six months right. you're pausing all of these things we want to do with this technology for six months that's what you're pausing we've yeah, thought about this for 50 years i didn't sign that it. letter i had multiple people ask me if i was going to sign it and i said absolutely not it uh i will absolutely sign a letter that uh shows support for continuous funding and monitoring of the potential negative implications and what the appropriate guardrails and policies to put in place are. But don't slow down innovation that may save lives, accelerate uh, analysis that may uh, protect against the unintended con consequences of it and the uh, negative intended uses that some people might use it for. So I do worry about it very much in the, uh, in the realm of disinformation. I, I worry about things like, seems like truth it's not as important these days to some people as believing what you want to believe
instead of what is proven to be true. And I worry that uh, the amount of disinformation, both language, uh, text and, and such, but also image, video and whatnot that can be created, that's to me the greatest concern. And that's where regulation needs to come in about how you can uh, how you can use these technologies to present uh, dangerous disinformation. Um, and, I, and I don't have an answer for it. I just, that's where I want to see some increased effort go. Well, it has been a wonderful conversation. I would love to uh, come back and talk about- oh, We're going to bring you back. I want to talk about Agora and other things, but uh, All thank you for joining us again, Byron. And I look forward to see you in person sometime real soon. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.